0: Thank you so much, Dr. Walker, for that overly generous introduction. Uh, I really am deeply grateful to Dr. Moeller, Dr. Jones, uh, and all the seminary faculty for inviting me to give these, uh, this, this double lecture. I, I, I can't tell you how honored I am to be invited to speak about Augustine, uh, the greatest of all the Church Fathers uh, at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. It's my first time here, my first time in Louisville. Um, I've been admiring this institution from a distance for quite some time now. This place, uh, you all know this, but maybe you won't mind hearing that somebody from the outside, a number of people from the outside know it it as well, this place is extremely rare among American academic institutions. You have managed to maintain a serious and deep commitment on the one hand to Christian formation uh, and to passing down the faith that we've inherited from the apostles without dilution, without apology, without accommodation to the spirit of the age. And at the same time, you're committed to academic rigor. Uh, to the courageous pursuit of an ever deeper understanding of God and his created world with all the best tools and methods that human reason can devise. Something similar could have been said a few centuries ago about most American higher ed- education institutions. Today, as you know, there are very, very few left that share both of those commitments at the same time. I do teach at another university that does, University of Dallas, a Catholic university. I'm a Roman Catholic myself. Uh, I spent, as Dr. Walker mentioned, a year at another one of those, a few that does, the Catholic University of America in D.C. Uh, there are obviously differences between a Catholic university and a Baptist seminary. There are going to be differences between a Catholic and a, and a Baptist reading of Augustine, although I do hope in my talk uh, to be concentrating on what we have in common reading him. I do just want to start, though, by saying how impressed I am with the extraordinary work that this seminary is doing informing young people uh, and, and middle-aged people uh, for Christian ministry. Uh, And in sticking to its mission in a culture that is increasingly hostile to what we're trying to do in Christian institutions of higher education, I'm deeply honored that you would invite me to lecture here, particularly on, as I said, such an important topic for our time, which is what Augustine has to teach us about Christian apologetics today. Uh, I should begin by, as you could tell from my CV, saying I'm I'm not an expert in apologetics. I'm not even a professional theologian. My training is in political philosophy. Uh, I've never been part of any formal church ministry as an adult. My main experience in apologetics comes from arguing with my my atheist friends in college and grad school. I've done a lot of that, a lot of that. Uh, I don't think, especially from grad school, that my my academic atheist friends are all that representative of uh, the average folks that you'll be dealing with in Christian ministry today. Uh, I don't intend, therefore, to say anything about concrete techniques or methods that a Christian apologist should adopt today in light of Augustine. Uh, I think tomorrow's speakers will be addressing that, uh, and, and, it's, and, and they should do it and not me. I'm just here as somebody who has, has read a whole bunch of Augustine, uh, and in particular his writings about the apologetics of his own day that he was engaged in. Uh, and in my second half, after the brief break, I, I'll get more to how what that on earth has to do with, with political philosophy, my, my, what's technically my field. Uh, it does turn out that apologetics has some close connections with Christian political thought for Augustine. Um, But in this first half, I just want to lay out some basic points about how Augustine himself conceived of the task of Christian apologetics in his own context, and what aspects of his thought we today might particularly want to look to and learn from in order to better understand what our own somewhat different tasks will have to be as Christian apologists in our own very different time and place, which is not what I'm going to talk about. Uh, Let's focus on Augustine for now, Uh, and let me start by raising... uh, what has to be one of the biggest objections to the idea that we would have anything to learn from Augustinian apologetics in its original form. What's the most obvious difference between his apologetical situation and ours? His world, the world he lived in, had been pagan quite recently. He was born under the last of the pagan emperors, Julian the Apostate. His own dad was probably a pagan. Over his lifetime, that Roman world was becoming Christian, at least in name. His greatest work of apologetics, the City of God, was still written with its primary target being paganism. And this was because after the first sack of Rome in 410, there was this question that arose, as it always does, after any large military defeat, whose fault was it? What went wrong? Who messed up? Did someone stab us in the back? And a number of people were suggesting, maybe it's the Christians. Maybe we made a mistake in abandoning the ancestral gods." And so Augustine takes that as an opportunity to revive what had been this older genre. Uh, there had been a lot more works written in this genre just a century or two earlier, before Constantine, that is, the genre of the Christian anti-pagan apologetic. Uh, none of these had been written for a while at his time, because you know, people, people had the impression it wasn't so necessary anymore. But now it seems, all right, we've got to go back to this to defend Christianity against the intellectual attacks of pagans. The City of God is the last, and most people, I think, would agree the greatest uh, example of this literary genre. After Augustine and until Nietzsche, so far as I know, there was no Western thinker who seriously tried to defend the pagan gods. Uh, There were people like Machiavelli, Rousseau, and Gibbon who were nostalgic for the world of the pagan gods. But even they weren't willing to say, we should try to worship them again. Uh, because they knew they didn't exist. With Nietzsche, the truth itself becomes questionable as a category, but that's, that's a whole other thing. It, it, it's, it's, a serious, it's a serious thing of its own, but in the US today, Nietzsche, at least in his religious ideas, has not really caught on. Paganism is almost non-existent. Uh, we had it this, on these shores much more recently than the Europeans did uh, because of the American Indians. Uh, But today, even on Indian reservations, there's just not that much serious paganism as there was one or 200 years ago. There's not that much, in other words, organized and ritual worship of alien gods. And that's what paganism looked like in Augustine's day. Given all these differences, why should Augustine's critique of paganism have any immediate meaning for us? I'll start with one simple observation. Augustine does not present the city of God as being written primarily for an audience of pagans. He indicates who his primary audience is by who he addresses it to. He addresses it to Marcellinus, a friend of his, a political official as it happens, a Christian, but a Christian who knew pagans. Marcellinus, and we know this from a letter that Marcellinus wrote to Augustine that appears to have been Augustine's excuse to write The City of God. I don't think he needed to write the entire City of God to respond just to that letter, but it was a serious question from a friend. The friend got more than he bargained for in response. (laughs) He's bothered by the questions, Marcellinus is bothered by the questions that his pagan friends or acquaintances are asking him, especially since the fall of Rome. He's been told, for example, this Christian faith of yours, it has doctrines that are contrary our moral duties, it's undermining uh, our moral obligations. This idea of turning the other cheek, they said, it's wrong. It's immoral to not resist evil. It's a dereliction of our duties in this life, which very much include resisting evil, they said. Marcellinus hears this accusation against his own faith, and it moves him. It doesn't move him out of the church, he doesn't stop being a Christian, but he wants to know the answer to these honest and sincere questions that are being put by relatively morally upright pagans. These are people who are seriously concerned with doing the right thing. They're not just looking for an excuse to go visit the temple prostitutes. Now, I could get into Augustine's specific interpretations of that and other passages in the Sermon on the Mount. I think they're fairly well known. But I'm more concerned here with just the general orientation of his apologetic writings. Augustinian apologetics are primarily directed not so much at convincing pagans directly as they are at helping Christians think about how to respond to honest questions from their pagan friends. I'm sure Augustine would not have minded if he happened to convince a few pagans along the way. And he personally knew as well as anybody in Western history how much of an impact reading books can have on your own life and how books can change the direction of your own life. There's really no. There's no work in Western literature like Confessions for illustrating that simple point. There's other good ones, but none of them tops Confessions. That's why it's still read at secular universities. Anybody who loves books cares about the about story in Confessions. Nonetheless, Augustine is simply taking for granted that the usual way someone becomes a Christian is not through reading books, it's through personal friendships with Christians. And that had, of course, been his own experience. For all that books played a major role for him as well, the people in his life were probably even more important. And the people who helped the young Augustine become a Christian had to be Christians, at least some of them had to be Christians who had been intellectually formed by their own Christian education to be able to answer face to face the honest questions of a seeker like Augustine when he asked them those questions. That's the type of Christian that the older Augustine is now trying to form and form more of through his writings, including City of God. Well-educated Christians who can give a reason for the hope that is in them. Now he never says exactly in so many words why it is that Christians should be concerned to answer those honest questions of a seeker after truth who's not yet Christian. In other words, why is apologetics even necessary? Why shouldn't we just say, and he certainly knew Christians that felt this way, why shouldn't we just say, look, this is what we believe, here's how we live, we hope it looks attractive to you. If you don't like it, there's nothing we can do about that. The Holy Spirit either speaks to you or he doesn't. Apologetics doesn't need to be a thing, as the kids say. As I said, he never responds in so many words to that question. But I have found in his writings at least three different reasons that show why Augustine thought that this whole enterprise of apologetics was legitimate and even necessary for those Christians who are intellectually equipped for it. He certainly didn't think that all Christians needed to read City of God. But he thought that those who could, should. And for at least the following three reasons. The first is what I I think we today would call intellectual honesty. Augustine uses the phrase love of truth. Augustine knew as a very young man that intellectual honesty was an absolute necessity for living a good human life. He knew it long before he knew that Jesus was the incarnate word. He knew it when he thought that intellectual honesty prevented him from accepting the Hebrew scriptures because they seemed stupid to him. He knew it while he waited for years for the Manichaean bishop to come and respond to all the intellectual objections that he had formed to Manichaeanism as a Manichaean. He knew it while he went on, having left Manichaeanism to examine all sorts of other philosophies. And he knew it even when he believed in Christ and wanted to accept baptism, but found that his own vices were holding him back from doing what he knew would be the intellectually honest thing to do. Augustine's intellectual honesty, or love of truth, was itself a gift from God. He's quite clear about that from the beginning. But he's equally clear that it was that one gift of God that became responsible for many other gifts of God that he later received, including his own Christian faith. His intellectual honesty brought him to the faith. He never, never thought that intellectual honesty is only a kind of ladder to the Christian faith that you can kick away once you've reached the faith. When he saw that same quality, that same intellectual honesty in others, whether they were Christians or not, he knew that what he was looking at was in fact the love of God, who is truth, even if they didn't know that yet. And so before we consider any other benefits we may get out of an honest conversation with non-believers, whether in person or in writing or by whatever means, we can just say from the beginning that honest questions deserve honest answers. That is a basic principle that I think is actually presupposed in the workings of every academic institution, including secular ones, or at least it ought to be. We could talk about how well our secular universities are living up to that these days, but If they're not, they don't like to admit that they're not. Nobody wants to say that they're against open inquiry. It's also a principle that is simply presupposed in all of Augustine's writings. Honest questions deserve honest answers. He doesn't defend it, it's just who he is. I will mention in passing, because I think it has some practical relevance today, Augustine is also very comfortable and much more comfortable than most American Christians are today, including myself. Much more comfortable warning that not every question from an unbeliever is an honest question. This is how he interprets Christ's warning not to, give per- not to put pearls in front of swine or to give what's holy to dogs, who are only interested in ripping us apart. Gotcha questions are not honest questions, and we don't have to answer them. But that does not change the point about honest questions, and it is also important to remember just because I don't yet know the answer to someone's question does not make it an illegitimate gotcha question, just because it got me. So intellectual honesty, that's the first reason why Augustine thinks apologetics are necessary. There are two more. These are two specific benefits that Augustine thinks that believers themselves receive from an honest conversation with non-believers about honest objections to the faith. The first benefit is that the believers will acquire a better understanding of the faith and of God himself. For Augustine, he writes quite a bit about this. Our faith, if it's genuine faith, can never be satisfied with being mere faith. In this life, we don't have that much choice in the matter. We walk by faith and not by sight. But as Augustine says explicitly, the Gospel of John does not say, This is eternal life to believe in the one true God. Eternal life is to know the one true God. To love God is to desire to know him. And belief is not yet knowledge. It's not yet understanding. Understanding is a sliding scale. We can have more or less of it. And even in this life, Augustine consistently asserted, we can make some limited progress toward a deeper and better understanding of the things that we hold by faith. And he thinks if our faith is genuine, we unavoidably want to do so as much as our circumstances and capacities permit. It's very limited, but it's not nothing. How do we do that? How do we come to understand God better? For Augustine, the answer is in part by asking questions about him and trying to figure out the answers to those questions. Why does a good God allow suffering? That's a big one. How can he be both just and merciful? What was he doing before he created the world? How long were those six days? Why did he give a law to Moses? What should that law mean for Christians? These are good questions that a theologian, whether professional or amateur, and every educated Christian should in a way be an amateur theologian, A theologian of any kind rightly seeks to answer these kinds of questions. And they're the same questions that honest non-believers are asking when they're confronted with the claims of Christianity. Many of them were questions that Augustine had before his conversion that bothered him and that, in some cases held him back from the faith until he could get better answers to them. He shows you this actually in one of the dialogues that he wrote not long after his conversion. uh, And it's the only place in at least his early works where he explicitly talks about what it means for faith to seek understanding. It's a dialogue, he depicts himself talking to a Christian friend of his who's bothered by the problem of evil. And the character Augustine says, all right, I'm going to help you work through this problem in the very same way that I worked through it when I was not yet a Christian. So the friend is, Augustine wasn't. In other words, it's the same thought process. The thought process that a non-believer has to go through in order to realize that Christianity might be true, that the objections he has to it are not actually decisive. That is, in many cases, the very same thought process, or at least a very similar thought process, to the one that a believer will go through in order to understand why and how the things that he believes are true. That is, the believer who's engaged in apologetics, if the conversation is an honest one, is also and at the same time engaged himself in the project of faith-seeking understanding. His own knowledge of God will deepen as a result of thinking through these same honest questions. They should be his questions too. And so that reason, that my second of the three Augustinian reasons for apologetics, that is, you could say, a theoretical benefit to the believer in the sense of it's a benefit to his own understanding of the faith. My third Augustinian reason for apologetics is a more practical benefit. Engaging in apologetics helps us to learn better how we should live and what we should do as Christians and how we should not live and what we should not do. And I'll illustrate this by coming back to the reason that Augustine wrote The City of God for Marcellinus and for the many other Christians whom he represents. Augustine is writing The City of God, as I said, in a largely Christianized empire, at least in name. Most pe- that is, most people in the empire would call themselves Christians. That does not mean paganism is dead. Augustine sees and mentions in the City of God a major challenge for Christianity that comes from within the visible church, among baptized people who think of themselves as good Christians, and who still nonetheless think that they should keep up the old pagan temples to the gods. This is very strange for us to imagine as Americans. But it's quite important for understanding what Augustine is doing in City of God. And I I will argue in a few minutes that I think it can actually apply to us in a different way. I'll, I'll get there later. But just to stick to his own context for a second. Many Christians are saying themselves, after the sack of Rome, that maybe it was a mistake to stop worshiping the ancestral gods of our city and our national culture. Of course, there is the one God above all the God of the Bible. Of course, we should go to church. We should also go to church. We'll worship the one God from whom we hope to receive eternal life in the world to come. But in this life, in this world, success, Augustine says these people are saying, success does not come only from the one God. Success depends on the lesser invisible powers that govern this earthly world, and we should give them their due as well. Syncretism, in other words, pagan Christian syncretism, is the great internal threat to the faith that may well be Augustine's primary target, as he writes City of God. It is at least a major target. He's not worried that everyone will stop going to church and go back to the temples. He's very worried that some Christians are already openly saying, we should do both. We should maintain both. That's the historical fact about where he's. Well, the historical fact is that he thought that, he tells us that was true. I mean, we have very little other documentation, but I have no reason to, to doubt his word. I'm going to make a political analogy here, if that's permissible. Imagine that in 1944, a British author writes a book in English and calls it On the Excellence of Europe Against the Nazis. He's not writing that because Great Britain in 1944 is full of Nazis. He's not writing it because he's worried that Great Britain is going to become Nazi in 1944. They're already winning the war. There are surely some Nazi sympathizers, mostly in secret, in Great Britain, and he wouldn't mind it if he could win over a few of those maybe with his book too. But that's not his main goal. Why is he writing? What's he worried about in 1944? Compromise with the Nazis. He's worried that his fellow Britons will get tired of fighting and decide that they can accommodate Nazism politically on the European continent, that peaceful coexistence is possible, that we can have it both ways. We can be good Britons without having to really defeat the Nazis on the battlefield. This would be a work you could say of political apologetics, whose defense of Europe and attack on Nazism would be primarily aimed at the understandable accommodationist impulse among Britons who are tired of making the sacrifices that are necessary to defeat Nazism. That again is a political analogy for spiritual warfare. I will talk in my second half about the actual political consequences of any of this, but we're not there yet. Augustine wants Christians to wage spiritual warfare against paganism in their own hearts above all. To do that, he has to make clear what's wrong with paganism so that Christians, this is, is why I say it's, a, it's practically important, so that Christians can clearly distinguish which aspects of pagan culture they have to reject and which ones they can make their peace with. This is a practical question for Christians of his day, and I think it's not hard to see how versions of it are practical in our own day as well. To stick again to his world for a second: is it pagan? Suppose there is a ritual pagan sacrifice. If you don't believe in the pagan gods, is it pagan? to sit through that sacrifice and to eat of the sacrificed meat. If you don't think there's really a Mars to whom it's sacrificed, is there anything wrong with that for a Christian? Is it pagan to bow to the emperor if the other people bowing to him think he's a god and you don't? Is it pagan to participate in political life at all? Is it pagan, if I can have a little anachronism here? to put up a Christmas tree, which of course originated as a pagan symbol before the Christians took it over. Is it pagan to read Aristotle and Homer? What about Euclid? All right, so somewhere between eating meat sacrificed to Jupiter on the one hand and reading Euclid's geometry on the other hand, we have to draw a line. line, Christians have to draw a line as to what we can and cannot appropriate from the non-Christian world. I've never heard a Christian argument against Euclid. And I've read A Christian Argument Against the Eating Meat Sacrifice to Idols. It's made by St. Paul, so that one's closed. <laughs> but it's in his apologetics, above all, that Augustine seeks to draw that line. Because it is in explaining what it is about paganism that we object to, it is in defending Christian truth against pagan objections, that we learn something about ourselves. We learn what exactly it is that makes us Christians rather than pagans, and where we have to draw the line in our own lives in order not to be making spiritual accommodations to paganism. That is a a practical question that affects all of us to this day, certainly in the world of Christian education, where we're reading many authors who aren't Christian, and also I will say in my second half in the world of politics, but sit tight for about 45 minutes for that one. There's a break before then, don't worry. (laughs) With all that as a preface, those three reasons why Augustine thinks that apologetics is a necessary task for us as Christians to the extent that we're capable of it, necessary even for our own self-understanding as Christians, I now want to turn to a few concrete aspects of Augustine's own apologetics that seem to me to be pretty clearly relevant to the world that we live in today. The biggest challenge for us in seeing the relevance of them is, as I started to say, there are no literal pagan altars in our earthly city. There are those those nice buildings. Uh, uh, Someone flown in from Rome 2,000 years ago might go to a few buildings in D.C. and expect that when he gets inside them, there will be pagan altars inside of them, and he'd be disappointed. That's not what they are. Uh, The founder's admiration for Rome was not an admiration for its paganism, fortunately for us. And again, the situation that Augustine was most immediately addressing himself to was literal pagan altars at which literal sacrifices are being offered to the traditional gods of Rome. People today use paganism sometimes in metaphorical ways. This is the original meaning of paganism. People, including Christians, are literally saying it was a mistake to abandon those altars. We should go back and kill goats, perform traditional religious rituals to the traditional gods of Rome. The primary organizing theme of the City of God, And this is often, I don't understand why, but it's often overlooked when people talk about City of God. The primary organizing theme is the concept of religion. You could call it a work of comparative religious studies, if you like, Uh, although unlike the contemporary field of comparative religious studies, it doesn't claim to be value neutral. Uh, Not sure any of us can be, but Augustine certainly doesn't try to be. The difference, the organizing theme is religion and specifically the difference between true religion and false religion. A true religion and a false religion are both religions. There is a genus religion to which both of them belong, and they have certain things in common with each other. That's the basis for the way the whole city of God is organized, is that there's something in common between true religion and false religion such that we can compare them and distinguish them. Both, for example, take place in a community of some kind, a religious community. There is no such thing for Augustine as a purely private religion. This it's not a religion. Both true and false religion involve some kind of visible, organized, communal religious observance, where the community uses outward signs to show its collective reverence for God, a God, or the gods. Both true and false religions, since they involve a community, have some form of leadership within that community. Priests or presbyters or ministers or whatever it may be. Both true and false religion observe certain holidays or sacred times. They make use of special buildings and spaces reserved for worship of the deity. They make certain moral demands. There are forms of behavior that God or the gods expect from us even when we're not in the temple or the church building or whatever it may be. In Book One of City of God, for example, Augustine talks about the sack of Rome, the recent sack of Rome, and the sanctuary that both Christians and non-Christians were able to receive in Christian churches. That is, for the most part, the barbarian invaders, even while they were pillaging the city in all other ways, like invading armies have done since time immemorial, they at least respected the sanctuary of the Christian churches. Augustine says, nothing like this ever happened before in pagan times. Now, you might say, well, of course it hasn't. There weren't Christian churches in pagan times. No, he makes clear what he means. Never in any pagan temple, never in the sacred buildings of the false religions did we see the kind of reverence for innocent life that we've now seen in the sacred buildings of the true religion. There is a parallel between them because they're both religions. They're both manifestations of the general human phenomenon religion. Augustine never tries to separate faith from religion, as certain later later liberal theologians would try to do. The City of God is a defense of one specific religion as the true religion. Augustine defends Christianity not as a philosophical school, not as a friend group, not as a social welfare system, although the church has something in common with all those things but as a religion, and because it is a religion, Christianity is in competition with other religions. You can be a Christian who's also an American. You can be a Christian who's also a Roman, he argues, but you can't be a Christian who's also a pagan because they're both religions. That's why he has to defend Christianity against paganism. Today, we read the city of God in a Western world that has largely accepted Augustine's critique of the pagan gods as gods. We read it in a country in which most Americans would call themselves Christians of one kind or another, and in which even the growing number who say they have no religion, or even among the growing number uh, who say they have no religion, very few are seriously thinking of becoming Muslims or Hindus or anything else. For those people, the people who say they have no religion, for the most part, what they mean is they don't go to Christian church. That's the religion that they don't profess is Christianity. And so the false religions that dominate our culture are mostly false versions of Christianity or of something that claims to be compatible with Christianity. That's quite different from the situation Augustine was facing. Nonetheless, even in that very different situation, I think we can learn a lot from what Augustine says. And let me give a couple examples. Let's take a look at the two main forms of religion, of false religion against which Augustine directs his polemic in the City of God. Now, the polemical part of this, what I'm calling the polemical part of the City of God is roughly the first half. City of God has 22 books. He divides it roughly in half. Books one through 10 are primarily negative. They're a critique of the gods of Rome, the gods of the city more generally. The second part, books 11 through 22, are more positive, and they explain what is the Christian alternative? What is the City of God that's on pilgrimage through this life? And how does it contrast with its great counterpart, the earthly city? I'll talk about the two cities in, my, in the second half after, after our brief break. I just want to talk about books 1 through 10 for now, the critique of the gods. That too is divided into, into two sections, books 1 through 5 and books 6 through 10. Books 1 through 5, he says, are responding to those pagans who say, and again, in some cases, even Christians who say, that the gods of the city ought to be worshipped for the sake of the good things of this life. You have to pray to Demeter if you want the crops to grow, you pray to Mars if you want victory in war, you pray to Venus if you want to have children. Religion, religion should be in the service of the good things of this life. There is no shortage of Americans who still believe something along these lines. Most of them would call themselves Christians. The crudest form of it is what gets called the prosperity gospel. Go to church, and you will become healthy, wealthy, powerful, admired, and successful, and so will your children. Religion is treated as a means to the acquisition of the fragile and perishable goods of this life. It's what Augustine calls carnal Christianity, a Christianity that is interpreted according to the flesh rather than according to the spirit. You can find traces of this carnal view of religion today, even among Christians who would say they reject the prosperity gospel. In the words of Augustine, It's very easy to execrate the flesh, but it's very difficult not to think carnally. Augustine's critique of this carnal paganism is in a way quite simple. It's not true. It is not empirically true. There is nothing about being a good person or worshiping God in the correct way that in any way guarantees that you will be rewarded in this life. It's not a reliable bet. Sometimes it happens. Sometimes it doesn't. God decides. There is nothing about being a bad person that prevents you from winning all sorts of blessings and successes in this life. He goes through Roman history and shows that the Roman city had experienced lots of other invasions, disasters, and civil wars without the Roman gods doing anything to prevent those because they can't, because God's providence permits these things to happen both to good and bad people alike. There are, of course, certain what Augustine there calls quasi-virtues, that do generally lead to worldly success. Hard work, diligence, self-control, these are much more likely to lead to worldly success than their opposites are. There are also certain vices that lead to worldly success. For example, love of glory. Augustine says, this is the reasons the Romans were so successful. With that one vice, he says, their passion for glory, they managed to beat down all sorts of other vices, both in themselves and in the nations they conquered. They suppressed their lusts their greed, their selfishness, selfishness of other kinds, all in the service of achieving worldly glory. And they got it. Congratulations, he says. Love of glory is still a vice. Doesn't change it. These first five books of the City of God are often mischaracterized, I think, as Augustine's Christian critique of Rome's pagan vices. Let me emphasize this point, because I think it's crucial for for, uh, Augustine's apologetics. And I don't even know if my, if my title, I forgot to mention the title of my talk. What title did I give my talk? I think philosophy and, uh, philosophy and True Religion in Augustine's Apologetics, right? We're finally getting to philosophy. Nothing, not a single thing that Augustine says in books one through five, in his criticisms of pagan religion, pagan politics, pagan morals, not a single one of those criticisms goes beyond what Augustine had already read in the best of the pagans themselves. Meaning, especially Cicero for him, the Roman philosopher and statesman for whom Augustine had enormous admiration. But Cicero, as he admits, was basically repurposing what he, Cicero, had read in Plato and Aristotle. And Augustine didn't have Plato or Aristotle, while well, we have lost most of Cicero. So I would point to all three of those philosophers Plato, Aristotle, Cicero. Is love of worldly glory a vice? Yes, they'd say. Yes, it is. Should religious rituals include adultery and fornication? No, they would say. How about men killing each other in arenas for others to watch? That was also a religious event for the Romans. No, not that either, would the, the philosophers would say. That's not good either. How about men cutting off their reproductive organs? That was another ritual that Augustine comes back to several times in these, in these passages. That's bad too, the philosophers would say. Should we tell stories about the gods beating up their fathers and cheating on their wives? Nope, the philosophers would say, a god would never commit an act of immorality. In fact, as Augustine mentions a couple times, books one through five are not targeted at his most intellectually serious opponents because educated Romans had actually known for centuries already that the carnal pagan view of the gods, the claim that religion will actually make you prosperous in this life is not true. The philosophers haven't bought this stuff for centuries. It's empirically falsifiable, and they're open to reality. And the reason that it's falsifiable, another important point for Augustine, is that the best of the philosophers, through their inquiry into human virtues and vices, had, in his view, done a very impressive job of describing genuine human excellence. And once you know what human excellence is, it's quite easy to prove that it does not correlate reliably with worldly success. I think it might be worth emphasizing that when I talk about moral philosophy for Augustine, I'm not talking about trolley problems. I'm not talking about debates about deontological versus utilitarian ethics. I'm talking about, look at what you see in Aristotle's ethics and Cicero's on duties and the Socratic dialogues of Plato and Xenophon. It's an effort to examine the kinds of human beings that any decent person knows to look up to, to admire, and to think through articulately. What does it mean to be that type of human being? What qualities of soul do they have to have? Self-control, fairness, mercy, gentleness, friendship, good counsel, and so on. Ciceronian morality is not all there is to Christian morality, obviously. But in his critiques of carnal paganism, Augustine does not presuppose that I can see anything about human excellence or about the universe that the philosophers had not already discovered on their own before before Christ came to Earth. That's why they didn't believe in carnal paganism. Although they still went to the temples, just like everybody else. And that's the next point I want to talk about is the philosophers. But just to wrap up this point about the carnal pagans, I'm not trying to say anything about how any Christian should talk about philosophy and use the word philosophy in their apologetics nowadays. When you say philosophy nowadays, people think trolley problems. It has nothing to do, for the most part, with Cicero or Aristotle. But I do think that Augustine's own extensive study of the philosophers and of the common human moral experience that they analyzed and that they tried to refine and purify, that study helped him write City of God the way that he wrote it. And I will particularly highlight sexual morality here, because Augustine brings it up again and again in books one through five. And it's obviously become very relevant again today. You can hear, again, the theme is religion, so let's concentrate on religion. You can hear religious justifications for various corrupt sexual practices today, just as Augustine heard them in his own day. Augustine never critiques pagan corrupt sexuality by saying that it's against what the Bible says. Quite the contrary. It's part of his defense of the Bible and of the Christian church to say, we are the only ones who are actually living by the genuinely human understanding of sexuality, the only sexual morality that is in accord with our dignity as rational beings, male and female, as the best of the philosophers were already aware, although even they may not always have lived up to what they preached. They had seen it, at least. They knew what human excellence demanded. Plotinus, Plato, Aristotle, Cicero would have been sickened by what we see around us today. They could see that these are not well-ordered souls. Augustine entered into dialogue with false and carnal understandings of religion, knowing that you don't even need to be Christian to see what's wrong with them. And so he could critique those understandings on terms that should be intelligible to them, even prior to the act of Christian faith. Now, at some point, of course, you do need the act of faith. And so I turn now to books six through ten, the critique of the philosophers themselves, the people who are already too smart for the carnal paganism. And above all, Augustine says, we should here argue with the Platonists, because the Platonists have already arrived through their philosophy at a great many of the doctrines that Christianity also teaches. They're monotheists, for one thing. They believe that the goods of this life are fleeting, that true happiness can only consist in knowledge and love of the one true God. They believe that it's only by a virtuous and upright life here on earth that we can be prepared to enjoy fully that knowledge and love of God in the next life, if God should reward us in that way. They're not always sure whether he does, but they at least know that would be the only way to get there. And yet, and yet, they also think you should follow the ancestral religion of Rome. They're philosophical monotheists, but religious polytheists. That sounds very strange to us, but it was not so uncommon in Augustine's day. People sometimes read this part of Augustine and they think he's making it easy on himself. You know, oh, he's, why does he, he only argues with the Platonists. They already agree with so much of Christian metaphysics. Why not engage the Epicureans or somebody who poses a real challenge? It's because City of God is about religion. Who is the greatest challenge to the Christian understanding of religion? It's the people who buy most of Christian metaphysics and still disagree and say we should worship many gods. That's a real opponent for your understanding of religion. That's going right to the roots of the thing. Take the the Platonist, he's picked the hardest opponent that he can possibly pick, the smartest people on the other side who reject his understanding of true religion. For Augustine, it is absolutely essential to the meaning of Christianity that we reject this philosophical, this pagan philosophical bifurcation between your beliefs about the universe and the human good on the one hand and your religion, your religious practice on the other. The false opinion, he says, that philosophy or quest for the truth is one thing and religion is another thing. Christianity, he says in an early work on true religion, stands absolutely against that false understanding. And he mentions, this is something that even non-Christians should be grateful to us for, he says. We don't believe, that is, that anybody should be practicing a religion that he does not sincerely believe reflects the truth about the universe and the human good. This is, he says, the Christian gift to the world. But why did the Platonists reject it? These are men who cared so much about knowing the truth. Why would they be indifferent to following a false religion? Well, Augustine says, of course, they offered all sorts of reinterpretations of the false religion. Maybe Jupiter is just a metaphor for the cosmos. Maybe Demeter is a metaphor for the seasons, and so on. Augustine shreds all these reinterpretations. None of them hold water, he says. Most of them are offered in bad faith. These are obviously post hoc efforts to justify what are, in fact, you know, are just inherited cultural traditions passed on from your ignorant and vicious ancestors who made up stories about the gods which they created in their own image. Why would intelligent men engage in this kind of philosophical silliness?" He has an answer to that question. And he speaks with some authority on this, because remember, he was one of those Platonists himself for a while. It's in Book 7 of the Confessions. He believed in one god. He even believed in the divine Logos. But he thought that Jesus of Nazareth was just a virtuous man and moral teacher the Incarnation was completely off his radar at the time, and presumably so was Christian religion. In The City of God, he uses, it's almost a quotation from the Confessions, he accuses the other Platonists, the non-Christian Platonists, of the same vice that in the Confessions he accuses his younger self of at the end of Book 7 of the Confessions. The vice is, of course, pride, philosophic pride. That is, the belief that While it's true, they had seen each of us does need God to be happy, we can find him on our own. Or even some of them would go further, maybe not on our own. We might need the help of other humans whom we select one by one for ourselves because we think they're good for us personally, gurus, mentors, philosophy professors. We can reach God on our own without the mediation of the man Jesus Christ. And, crucially, the mediation of the human community that the man Jesus Christ left behind him in the apostles and the early church, a church that continues to be on pilgrimage through this life and will be until the end of time. Why did the Platonists not care whether the religion they practiced was true? It's because they thought they did not personally need religion. They could care for their own souls. They could care for their own souls. They could read Aristotle's ethics or Cicero's on duties. And, as people say now, be a good person without going to church. At this point, I hope it's clear how relevant this is to today. The eat, pray, love view of God is a watered down and much less impressive version of something whose most intellectually serious version Augustine had found in the Platonists. I mean, gosh, you know, if you're going to be philosophically proud, at least have something to be proud of. Like if you're Plotinus, I can see it. Elizabeth Gilbert, whatever. What is this view? The view is, it's fine if I do go to church, or if I don't. Because church either way is not what really matters for the well-being of my soul. That is between me and God alone. And I can look up to moral exemplars, including even Jesus himself, as some of the Platonists did. But I don't need him in my life. I don't need his church. Religion is a personal choice. It is not a gift from God himself. And here, too, then, I think that Augustine's critique of philosophic self-sufficiency in both the Confessions and the City of God is quite relevant to our own apologetic situation. Because he says, guys, you're lying to yourselves. He says, I know this because I was one of you. Arguably, he was the best of them, and it wasn't enough. You're not as virtuous as you wish you were. You're not as happy as you say you are. You're not as wise as you should want to be if you're truly lovers of wisdom, as you claim. I've tried it myself, he says. I've lived like you for a while. I had a very good understanding of human excellence and how a human ought to live. And I was still incapable of living that way, only by putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, by accepting the humiliation, including the intellectual humiliation of faith in Christ, by acknowledging my human weakness and my dependence on him, and by recognizing that I have to meet him through humanly written scriptures, written by men not as smart as Cicero, and in a human religious community of those also seeking after him like I am. All of these things that I, Augustine, wanted to think I was too good for. Only when I did that, he says, did I begin to make humble progress towards the ideals of life that philosophy had articulated for me so beautifully. If philosophy is love of the truth, then true philosophy needs to acknowledge that we only find the truth when the truth takes a step towards us in the person of Jesus Christ, and when we humble ourselves enough to receive that step. So that's just a framework for helping to fit Augustine's basic apologetical concerns into, I think, some of the genuine challenges of our religious situation as contemporary Americans. I think there's a lot more to be said about all those issues, but since I am a political theorist, I did figure I should start talking about politics at some point. So that's going to be my next lecture.